probably anywhere between eight and ten weeks is what it's going to take to go through the book of Esther here. Um, we're going to kind of give you a little bit of uh, background here today, so we won't get too far into it today, but we'll see. Maybe we'll get most of chapter one done. Um, like I said, we do, uh, I, I believe that this is on Patreon already, I'm not 100% sure, um, but it'll probably be slightly different every time I do this, so if you did get to hear this before, it might be a little bit different again. Once again, um, I learned this from uh, Daniel Joseph, so I want to give him credit for this as well. Um, I had never seen the book of Esther like this before. And now, when I read it, it's just like, wow. It just absolutely opened up that book in so many ways. I think you're going to see that. You won't get to see as much tonight, but this is a very prophetic book. That's the bottom line. It is prophetic. And when you look at it prophetically, it'll change the way you see it from here on out. You know, the one rule of thumb that I love that he always is talking about is everything in Scripture points us to Jesus. Everything. And so if you're reading Scripture in the Old Testament and you're not looking for Jesus, then that's why you're missing it. And today he spoke on uh, Jude, and it was just a a good wake-up call, I think, for people to, uh, in the regards of, our temple and how we are to be protecting and guarding our temple. And one of the things that this week I've been thinking about a little bit is the law of God. How the law of God has just such a negative view in so many lives of Christians. And I know that is of the devil who has tried to do that. Now, on the flip side, I know the level the devil has taken, and he's allowed people to use the law to make it something that is bad, that it is uh, a ladder of righteousness, the Mormon, you know, Latter-day Saint kind of thing, all right? I, but when you look at the law with Jesus as your focus, it changes everything, how you understand what the law is, and that's the key. You can look at the book of Esther and be bored or see it as some nice story to read for a bedtime or you can see Jesus and it being very prophetic and it's speaking to you directly. And I hope that that's what you're going to get out of it. But as I was thinking about the law here this week, what struck me, and this is probably nothing new and I probably can't even word it the way that in my mind and in my spirit how it spoke to me, but it was this. I thought, our world is falling apart. As I was praying for people and just seeing what, what even goes on in churches, I just was, like, frustrated. And then I remembered, you know, the promises that God gives us in Deuteronomy and throughout the whole Old Testament. If you will obey my laws, if you do this, he's going to be with you. Your, your, your crops are going to be great. You're, you're, you're not going to miscarry. You're not going to do all of these bad things if you obey my law. And I thought... So why is our country in such a mess? Because we have forsaken the living waters. We have forsaken the law of God. And it just, for whatever reason, hit me a little bit this week that it's like, that's it. Even Christianity has forsaken the law of God. And he has been faithful to his promise. No wonder the churches look like what they do today. Because we have dropped the ball. And he warned us. Because this is not what he intended it to be. What, what's going on in the world right now, that is not what he wants. He doesn't want the divisions in the churches. He doesn't want the, the arguments and all of the the droughts and the famines and he wants to be blessing us but we have decided to do it our way and we've decided to let God you know we'll do it the way we want when we want how we want well anyway in the book of Esther here 
uh, it's called the Megillah. And so when we did Purim, some of you were here for Purim. We had our little uh, dress-up costume party. I don't know what you call it, but our Purim festival. Um, this would be great to do around that time, but I think it'll just make Purim this next time that much more meaningful to you. One of the things they do at Purim is they read this story of Esther. That is the, the main thing. One of the best ways you can celebrate the festival of Purim is to study the book of Esther. And it is not one of these things that you're going to find in the Bible, in Leviticus 23 or any other place, telling you that you should celebrate the festival of Purim. But in the book of Esther, it tells you you should celebrate the festival of Purim. And I was thinking about that today, actually, and I thought, well, duh. It doesn't matter if it's in Leviticus or one of these things that God came down and said, this is you should, what you should do, or if it's in the book of Esther, because I believe the book of Esther is the word of God. It's the inspired, inerrant word of God. So if the book of Esther is telling you you should do Purim, I think we should celebrate Purim. Because it's still scripture, it's still God's word coming through probably Mordecai here. All right, And so it's still important. Um, I think you're going to see that because of where we are in the world right now, that this is going to be very meaningful to go through this book because it is, as I said, prophetic of end times completely. And that will become more clear as we go. Um, it, it ultimately is going to be a message of victory. And so here is where that command to celebrate this is. It's in Esther 9.20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes. Now, I must have NIV here. It, I do not believe Xerxes is the right name there. It should be Ahasuerus. Xerxes is in the NIV, and the NIV, his, this is all what we call historical criticism. They looked at history, and they thought, oh, this has got to be the guy, Xerxes. So Ahasuerus must be Xerxes, so they put in Xerxes. I don't believe it's Xerxes. This is a guy named Ahasuerus. Okay. Yeah, I think most other than the NIV, most. So, yeah, the nearly inspired version I have up here, apparently. The extra saved version has the... <laughs> So, anyway, um, King Xerxes, near and far, Ahasuerus, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy in their mourning into a day of celebration. So, kind of like even what I was saying before, their mourning is going to be turned into celebration. Guys, I'm telling you the trials that you go through here in this life right now, there's a day that that is all going to be worth it, and it will be turned to a celebration, to joy. Don't grow weary. Don't grow tired in this fight. It continues in verse 22. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy in giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. Now, down the road here, as we're studying Esther, you're going to see this whole idea about dual covenant theology that there is a covenant that God gave to the Jews, and then there's a covenant he gave to the church. I believe that's a doctrine of the pits of hell. Okay, I will we'll talk about that in great detail later, but for now, I'm bringing it up because I want you to see that you are to celebrate this if you're a Jew. So some people are going to be very apt to say, well, that's a Jewish thing, so you don't need to do it. I'm telling you this. You, if you are a believer in Yeshua, are a Jew. Period. That's how God sees it. Maybe that's not how our vocabulary uses it. Maybe that's not how many churches use it. But that's what the, bib the biblical description of a Jew is. Okay, in Romans 4 it says a Jew is not a Jew if he is circumcised, you know, f outward physically, but he is circumcised inwardly. We see that Jesus, to the Jews, the Pharisees, when they were 
doubting and questioning him, he says, you know, our father Abraham, and Jesus looks at them and says, your father Abraham, you're not, your father's not Abraham, your father's the devil. If your father was Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. In other words, if you were really a Jew, you would do what your father Abraham did. You would be walking and following after me. And so what we see scripturally in one of the messages that I did is called Our Identity. I, I did it up at uh, New Life. It talks about this very thing, just scripture after scripture after scripture, that guys, we have been grafted in to that covenant. Now, I realize still there are some differences between Jew and Gentile because we see in Romans as well, it says that, you know, when, when judgment comes, it will be first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. When grace comes and mercy, it says first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. When the apostles went out and preached the gospel, who did they go to first? First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Which is interesting because church today, what do we think? To the Gentile and eh, forget the Jew. That rule has never changed. We should be first going to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So there are some differences that I don't understand. But spiritually is what I'm talking about here. You, as Gentiles have been grafted in and now share in the same nourishing sap, as Romans says, as the Jewish people have. And so you, it, it's just like what uh, Esther, or not Esther, uh, Ruth said to Naomi. Your God will be my God, your people, my people. That's the attitude of what Christianity is supposed to be. So don't throw this out because it says that the Jews are supposed to celebrate it. I think that means all spiritual Jews. Everybody who has been grafted in, who have become children of Abraham by faith. Because that's what I am. I'm a child of Abraham because of faith now. Very scriptural. So anyway... Um, There is a little bit of a mystery to the book of Esther. And that is because Esther does not once, not even once, mention the name of God. Not just Elohim, but Yahweh, Jehovah Jireh, nothing. God is not mentioned a single time. The close second in all of scripture would be the Song of Solomon, which only has... Uh, Yah mentioned once. So, some people have questioned, does this really belong in Scripture because God is not mentioned? Well, absolutely it does. It's always been in Scripture, accepted as Scripture, and I would say, by and large, all of theologians would say, yes, it's supposed to be in Scripture. But there are those little fringes that might say it doesn't because the word God is not mentioned but I don't think that means anything. You're going to see God is mentioned, but in different ways, because it is more of a, a parable-type book that you're going to see. Um, another strange thing is the language that's used. Uh, many words that are in the book of Esther are actually going to be Persian. Transliterations of the Persian words to Hebrew. For example, the word parim, which we see as lots, is actually the Persian word for lots. Um, Esther, the very name of the book, is not a Hebrew name. Uh, Esther is, comes from the Persian word where we get star. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. So some very unique things here. Um, another strange thing is when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the book of Enoch, but Esther was not there. They, they did not find Esther with that, which is also interesting. Um, anyway, her name meaning, meaning star, I think is intentional, because what you're going to see is that she's going to lead many to righteousness. And that is exactly what we see in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, talking about those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
So the righteous are called stars in some sense. And so that's just a little bit of background on that. Uh, we also see that as far as a time frame that we're talking about, about 460 to 350 B.C., and I would say there's little to no controversy in regards to that. Okay. Um, as far as the author goes, who wrote this, um, we don't know. It's kind of like the book of Hebrews. We're not sure. The pulpit commentary tells us all of this. It says that the Jewish scholar Aben Ezra said Mordecai wrote it. Clement of Alexandria, a church father, said Mordecai wrote it. Uh, other Christian commentators assign it to Mordecai as well. But then you have people like Rabbi Azarias, who said it was written by the high priest Jehoiakim. Don't know. Augustine says Ezra wrote it. Uh, the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, says that the men of the great synagogue put it together. Who are they? They are the people who came back from Babylon and were kind of the uh, ruling people. So Ezra was one of those. So we don't know who wrote it for sure, ultimately. So just some background there. Another weird thought. I was listening to something this week. Uh, a woman who had been sex trafficked uh, when she was young got out of that. She now has a ministry and... Um, for those who are coming out of sex trafficking. And, you know, they talk about it. It's easy to find these people who are being sex trafficked. But what's hard is to get them back to life because it's all they know. And she was sold out when she was seven years old. Here in this country, by the way, at rodeos. Okay, just absolutely disgusting. But anyway... Through this curriculum that she has put together, what was fascinating is she brought this up, and I thought, oh, I'd never thought of that. She brought up that Esther was trafficked. And I thought, hmm, that's a different way of looking at it. Because here is a woman who was just part of a harem of women, you know, for the king. And in a sense, you know, it is. It wasn't maybe quite the same. But you look at that, and I thought, boy, that's an interesting perspective to think about when you look uh, at the book of Esther, too. Uh, like I said, I think it's slightly different, but nonetheless, there are some parallels. So what that means, I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's begin here in Esther 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes... Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Now, I've shown you up here how big of an area this is. Now, this is going to be centered around the town of Susa, which is circled here in the red. Now, you can't see real well because the projector is not the greatest, but you can see ultimately this dotted line. That is a world power right there, especially back then, all the way from India to Kush. So what this first verse is telling us is, hey, this is a world power. In other words, the king is numero uno, and I'm going to just give you a little spoiler alert. The king, Ahasuerus, is going to be a picture of God in this whole parable that you're going to see. Okay? And so God is the ruler of the world, is what you're going to be seeing here. Verse 2, at that time, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the princes were present. Here is Susa today, just in, when you look in modern day Iran, give you an idea of where it's at. This would have all been the area that they had ruled over. Today it's just right there on the border of Iran and Iraq. Well, it's interesting that this is the third year of his reign. Because 
There is a passage in Hosea, Hosea 5, at the very end of the chapter, beginning into chapter 6. It says, God says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a great lion to Judah. I will go away, or I will tear them to pieces, and then I will go away. And he says that after two days, I will restore them. And on the third day, I think actually after two days, I will revive them. On the third day, I will restore them that they may live in my presence. Now, I, I asked 20 years ago, I asked every pastor I could find, what does this mean here in Hosea 5 and 6? Nobody could ever tell me. I don't know. No, it didn't seem to fit anything that ever happened in history. It didn't seem to fit anything in Jesus' day. Nobody could tell. Well, I came to understand... And I, since then, I've seen others start picking up on this, I think because the Spirit is teaching the same things, that each day of creation is like a thousand years of history. And Martin Luther said that. The, the Jews have said this. So, in essence, the Jews said there should only be 6,000 years of history. Martin Luther said that on day one of creation, you separate light and darkness. The first thousand years of history is dominated by Adam separating good and evil, light and dark. The second day of creation, God separates waters. The second day of creation also patterns the second thousand years of history, which was dominated by Noah and the floodwaters. The third day of creation is basically uh, filling the earth with vegetation. And the third thousandth year of history is dominated by Abraham filling the world with people in a sense that God's chosen race. The fourth day is the sun, moon, and stars. The four thousandth year of creation is dominated by Jacob and his 12 sons. We see that being uh, the stars. Remember Joseph's dream? He says that I saw the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down before me. We see in Revelation them being referred to the stars as well. The fifth day of creation was fish and birds. Fifth day of creation was dominated by the New Testament beginning, and we see New Testament symbols, the fish and the bird, the Holy Spirit, that kind of thing. The sixth day of creation was dominated by filling the earth with man and land animals. In the last thousand years of history has been dominated by an increase in population like never before. We see at the time of Christ, there was about one quarter billion people on earth. That was it. Then in 19, uh, 1810, we had one billion people in 1810. And now we're at about eight billion people almost. So there has been an explosion in population. Well, I say all of that just to get to this point. In Hosea 5 and 6, he says that he's going to be like a lion to Ephraim. He's going to tear them to pieces. He's going to go away. When did that ever happen? Well, remember what Jesus said to the Israelites, to the Jews? He said, I leave you this place desolate. He says, how I have longed to gather you under my wing as a hen you know, gathers her chicks under her wing but you were not willing, so I leave you this place desolate. And where does he go? He goes back to his place. I believe that those are, when you see this, this truth in Scripture, it's everywhere. It'll, you're going to see it in a lot of different places. When you see those days being talked about, three days and so on, it oftentimes has a picture of 3,000 years or 2,000 years or whatever the number is. And so... He's going to be like a lion to Ephraim. He goes back to his place for two days, 2,000 years. Then after 2,000 years is up, on the third day, it says there in Hosea 6, on the third day, he restores them so that they may live in his presence. So I see that back in the year 2000 is when this came to my understanding, that 2,000 years after he goes back to his place or his ascension into heaven. Sometime after 2,000 years to his ascension, then the third day would begin. Now, I am not date setting here. 
Okay, because I know I'm walking that fine line, but I am not date setting. I couldn't for a couple of reasons. One, we really don't know when he ascended. There's different views out there. From 27 to 35 AD, that is when he died. Okay? I don't know, I kind of tend to think it was the 27 to 30 range. If that's the case, and if that's right about Hosea and 5 and 6, then we're, not, we're about there. Time's almost up. I find it interesting that he's thrown this great party when? In the third year of his reign. He's already been ruling for two years. Jesus has come, and that's when he has begun, in some ways, his reign. Not fully, but he has come and has condemned the devil. So that now, in the third year of his reign, there's going to be a great party. And in the third year of this reign, when all of this is happening, you're going to see some, well, the whole parable of Esther unfold. I think it's, if this doesn't excite you when we get into this, I'll be really shocked. Uh, or I really have done a poor job, because I'm telling you, it's amazing. I love it. You're going to have to trust me on that. Yep. So anyway, that's what I find interesting about this third day citadel of Susa. Verse 2. Verse 2. At that time, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persian media, the princes, and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all, excuse me, the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So now we see this king who is going to be a picture of God. Now you may start going, I just don't see that. Just wait. For now, keep that in your mind. He is, just put God in that picture for now. He's holding this huge banquet to reveal the splendor of his majesty. That is what God is going to do when he comes back. There is a great wedding banquet of a lamb that's going to take place and there is going to be, God is going to show us his splendor. Now this king here is being very generous. He's displaying the vast wealth of his kingdom. He's throwing a 180 day party. Um, no expense was spared. And at the end of these 180 days, he has this really big party, a seven-day party. And when that number seven comes up in Scripture, it usually means something too. Now, there are two festivals that we see. We've got the festival of Passover, that's seven days. But we also have a fall festival when the Lord is supposed to return another festival called Sukkot, or Tabernacles, a seven-day festival of celebration and whatnot. And so that's also kind of just an interesting little note here at this point. Verse 6, The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. So, in other words, what he's trying to do here is just, this is a breathtaking picture. This is beautiful and amazing. That's what heaven is going to be like. Okay, streets of gold, all of that kind of thing. Continues in verse 7, Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Ahasuerus. So we see that the king is very generous. But in the meantime, his queen, Vashti, is throwing a party for the women. And it continues in verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, 
uh, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass. Just making up the pronouncements there. To bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, what have you heard that the king is trying to do here with Vashti? What does he want her to do? Show her off, strut her stuff. How many of you have heard naked? Yeah. I have heard it a number of times that this pervert was bringing his queen out and wanted her to be wearing nothing but her crown naked and that's why this was such a big deal and why she refused to come. And it kind of basically is saying what a jerk the king is and how upright Vashti is. I'm going to present to you the absolute opposite. Vashti is going to be a picture of the unregenerate church. The, the, those that reject the king, reject the call. Okay. Um, the Septuagint, which is simply the Greek translation of the New Testament, or Old Testament. So it's the Bible. As a matter of fact, 50% of the quotes we see in the New Testament come from the Septuagint. So it is scripture, inspired scripture. It's interesting because if you can get your hands on a Greek translation of Esther, you're going to find that it's quite a bit thicker. There's extra books in the Septuagint for the book of Esther. There's a lot of extra details in the book of Esther in the Septuagint. Josephus, uh, commentating on the book of Esther, used the book of uh, Esther out of the Greek, the Septuagint. So I'm going to take you to the Septuagint to kind of give you just small details that are added there. We see here the top part is just how ours reads. In the bottom there, in the Greek Septuagint, to escort the queen to him in order to proclaim her as queen and to place the diadem on her head, that, that crown, to have her display her beauty to all the governors and the people of various nations, for she was indeed a beautiful woman. What we see in the Septuagint is this little tiny added detail that he wanted to put a crown on her head. What does God want to do for us? When we go to meet him, there's going to be a crown of glory, right? Yeah. Remember, is it Timothy that talks about we don't run for you know, a, a prize that is going to wear away, but we run for an eternal crown ultimately. So, it seems to me that I don't know how this idea that he wanted her to parade around naked came about because even in the, the text we're reading, it doesn't say anything about that. It certainly doesn't give you any indication of that in the Septuagint either. I don't, this is just like something that somebody pulled out as an idea and it has spread throughout Christianity. But I, I just don't believe it's true, especially understanding Esther the way you're going to here. Um, so, for me to say that this is a parable, the book of Esther, I want you to see that this is not just a new thought. This has been around. The Jews have always seen King Ahasuerus as a picture of God. They have always seen this as parabolic. It says, on the mystery level, this is basically uh, what the, uh, a Jewish... I don't know what to, Jewish writing and, and uh, Talmud type stuff. It's not Talmud, but anyway, this is what they say. On the mystical level, King Ahasuerus alludes to God, the king of the world. The Midrash reads the name Ahasuerus as an acronym for Aharit Verashit Shiloh, alluding to the one whom the end and beginning are his. Which you can kind of see that in Ahasuerus, because uh, Aharit, that is like end times. Bereshit, that's how the word begins in Genesis. It means in the beginning. 
and you can see a, a little connection to that, Vereshit, Verosh, and Shiloh is just like my kind of thing. So the Jews see that this is a prophetic book as well. That's basically all I'm really trying to show you here, I guess. So Vashti is this picture of the rebellious church, the rebellious Christian, and those who are going to refuse to come when the king calls. And I'm going to show you some New Testament parallels to that here soon. But Noah talked a little bit about this with two women um, a few weeks ago. The scriptures are filled with this, this comparison of two women. Here you're going to see Vashti and Esther, one who accepts the call, one who does not. You have the ten virgins, five who listen, five who do not. You have um, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth says, your God will be my God. Your God will be, you know, your people will be my people. Orpah goes back to her people. Um, Hagar and Sarah. We have this idea today, and there's truth to it, that we are pond scum. Okay, that not evolution pond scum, but like we are worthless without God. We're, we're scum of the earth. You know, without God, we're, we're sinners, we're enemies of God, all that. There's some truth to that. I think that today some theology has taken that too far. You have to realize that to God, we are his creation. And he loves us. And to him, you are the most beautiful bride. And he is going to take pride in you. Because that gives him glory, taking pride in you. And that is what this king is doing. He wants to bring his bride and show his bride off. Let me tell you, God's going to do that. He's going to do that to you. He will show you off because he is proud of his creation. He is. He loves you. Well, I kind of think a couple of things to everybody, but also I think it's I don't know what word to say it, but a proclamation to the devil. The beauty of his pride. Remember what he says to Job? Have you considered my servant Job? He's blameless in all his ways. Yeah. Um, when he died, he went and he preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago in the days of Noah. What, what was he preaching? The word there in the Greek is, is like a proclamation of victory. And so there is some aspect, I think, that he is going to parade in front of Satan, the ungodly. Look what I have done. This is what you rejected. This is what I have built. We are built, being built as a, a temple, a priesthood. And so he is building his church, and he's going to be proud of it. So I don't understand end time stuff very well. I don't think anybody does. If they think they do, I think that they probably think they know more than they really know. Um, there are some aspects there when we read in Zechariah where God is that hoopah around Jerusalem. That bride is all being protected and there are those that are outside that for that millennial type thing. And if they don't come and worship the king, they get no rain. I don't understand who all those people are, why they're there, what they're doing, but I think that's also part of it, is that God brings us to Jerusalem. It's a big party in many ways, a celebration. We're being protected by him, and he's proud of us, and he's going to show us off. Pride is a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, is it wrong for us to be proud of our children when they are godly? Not at all. Not at all. So well, I think he's the only one that can boast. I mean, God's God is allowed to be proud. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he 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 deserves it. He can be, but yeah. It's the same thing. If I boast, I boast in this that he knows and loves me. He's the one that exercises kindness and justice. So. But anyway, like I said, this is not unique to, to the book of Esther. We, we constantly see throughout Scripture this comparison of two women.
one that will follow the call and one that will not. And I think Esther is doing the exact same thing. <coughs> Continues in verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, sounds like God, doesn't it? He spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. And then you got all these names. Uh, Mamukin we'll see again. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She, was not, she has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, that the eunuchs have taken to her. So we're not going to be able to move hardly any verses at all, and you, you're going to see parallels. Now we see that the king has seven nobles that are his wisest men that sit in front and before him that are his counsel in a sense. Seven important people. Not only that, but you are also seeing here that he's at, according to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? What must be done to those who refuse my calling? Guys, when we are judged, when the world comes to an end, you will be judged by the law of God. We've got this idea, no, we're going to be judged whether we know Jesus or not. No, there's a lot of people who know Jesus who are still going to be judged. The devil knows Jesus. There's a lot of people who will be judged and sent to hell even by knowing Jesus. They never made Jesus their Savior. And the law is going, you will be judged by that based on do you know Jesus? Is he your personal savior? Because then he fulfilled the law for you. And every time you broke the law, it's been covered and forgiven. So yes, Jesus is a part of it, but the law is too. That what is sin? Well, first, first John, I think it is, says sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is. You want to define what sin is? Scripture says it's lawlessness. That is America today. Lawless. That is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And so, according to the law, what must be done to those who reject my call? Well, you're going to see it's pretty strict. They're going to be cast out of the kingdom. And if we see the kingdom as being God's throne, God's, you know, heaven, in essence, it's you're being cast to hell. And that's the picture you're going to be seeing here. As far as these seven people, it's kind of interesting in Revelation 1, verse 12 and 20. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. We even see scripturally that there are seven angels that are among the throne of God. That serve him. That do his bidding. I'm going to take you to an apocryphal book called Tobit. Again, not in scripture, but just an interesting parallel here. It says uh, an angel is coming to Tobit and saying, I was sent to you to test you. And at the same time, God sent me to heal you and Sarah, your daughter-in-law. I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stand ready and enter before the glory of the Lord. Just interesting that here it talks about there are seven angels before God. Revelation says that there are seven angels before God. And here we see King Ahasuerus having seven counselors before him. Second Corinthians 3.12 says this, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. 
were not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. This verse has been interesting to me because I see many Christians today want to use this as saying that in Christ, then the law is taken away. But that's not what this is saying. It says that when the law is read, there is a veil. Christ doesn't take away the law. He takes away the veil. Big difference. It's kind of like what I was saying before, is when you read the Old Testament, when you look at the law, you need to look at it through the lens of Jesus, and then you see the veil will be removed, and you see, oh, this isn't just about stoning or not stoning. This is deeper than that. I see through Christ the real intention and the purpose of what this law is about. That's what this means. And this is going to be a truth in the book of Esther. That when you look at the book of Esther through the eyes of Jesus, there is a veil that you see that this isn't just a bunch of just historical facts, but there's a spiritual truth behind it. The veil will be removed and you will see it. Verse 12 says, When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So, the queen refuses to come here in verse 12. I'm going to take you to the New Testament to show you an exact parallel of what we're reading here in the book of Esther. And if this doesn't kind of start to solidify and go, okay, now it's starting to make sense and I don't know what will. Matthew 22, verse 1. Remember the parable here? Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants, just as King Ahasuerus sent them to get Vashti, to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come, just like Vashti did. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. So, strong parallels, continuing, verse 5. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. Just like King Ahasuerus is here. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. I think just reading ahead a little in the book of Esther, if you know the story, you can kind of see where this is going. They're going to get all these women who will come and be the next queen. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Verse 13, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Okay, and there they were again, the seven nobles. And again, according to the law, what must be done? Um... We, we looked at that here already, so I'm just going to jump into verse 16 as well. Then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the province of King Xerxes, King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. What's that? 
<laughs> Got to keep those women in line. Well, you do. You do. When we look at well, who, are the, who is this woman? It's us. It's the church. The rebellious people. And we do have to keep them in line. Because otherwise, it spreads like a cancer. A little yeast works its way through the whole batch. And this is really a picture of church discipline right here. Because on the physical aspect of this, yes, other women in the kingdom are going to be empowered by Vashti's disobedience, her unsubmissiveness. And the king knows that that is going to be infectious. That's a kingdom killer. Well, that is a kingdom killer for a home when you have a wife that is a dripping faucet or um, the, the authority is not understood, that respect is not there. That, that's a, a house killer. And likewise it is for the church because this is what Jesus even says in the New Testament, Corinthians, what does it say? That if there is somebody who has sinned in the church... You, you go talk to them. If they don't listen, you go back with somebody else. If then they don't listen, then the elders get involved, and then you kick them out, right? And it says that if you don't, use it, it says, hand this man over to Satan so that his soul may be saved at the last day. The goal isn't Was it you talking about God's wrath? Yeah. The goal isn't God's wrath as being this awful, mean thing. This is God's wrath with the intent of mercy. Yeah. So wrath, there is a positive aspect to it. Discipline has to take place within the church, within the home, within the kingdom, because if it doesn't, it does run amok. And that is really what Jesus said would happen to the church in the end times. You know, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast and the dough. I grew up most of my life believing that that was, oh, the kingdom of God is like a little tiny mustard seed, and it grows to be the big, huge bush, and oh, it's beautiful. And likewise, the kingdom of God is like yeast, and you put it in the dough, and it works its way throughout the whole dough. Oh, great, it spreads like wildfire. No, 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 no. This is a bad thing. Yeast in Scripture is always a picture of false doctrine, sin. And what we see is just like what the rest of Scripture tells us is that the end times, Thessalonians said that the church, there will be a great falling away. The church will become apostate in the end times. And one of the reasons that's going to happen is because I don't think church discipline is practiced. Most churches don't know how to practice church discipline. And bottom line is what that means is the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and so it grows but then what happens it says the birds come and perch in its branches birds in scripture are almost always a picture of the devil and his minions they are not a good picture and so in essence what he's saying is the church is going to grow but there's going to be so much yeast in it and the devil is going to be in it that he's warning you. Just like we read in Jude and many other places, you know, that after I leave, many uh, wolves in sheep's clothing are going to be coming in among you. They're going to secretly slip in among you and uh, turn the grace of our God into a license to sin, all of those kinds of things. And that is what is being prevented here, is... The, this infectious disease of disobedience to God has to be dealt with. That's what the law of God even commands. Needs to be dealt with. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be restoration. Okay, the Bible does talk about restoration. We're not going to get into what that means. That's a whole other thing. But uh, there is restoration that can take place when they turn back. Vashti never does. We never see Vashti repenting. We never see that. But anyway, 
Ecclesiastes 9.18 says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Or 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. So, this is what we're seeing here with Vashti. A little leaven will affect the whole lump. Um, so, women take note as others watch you. How do you treat your husbands? Are you a kingdom killer for other homes? I, a prime example of this, when we were in Oregon, we had a Friday night Bible study. And this is one of the, I mean, when we moved back to Nebraska, that's why we're doing this here, because we've been doing this for years. And it became a family, a true family. And one of the ladies there was just really mean to her husband all the time. Sometimes tongue-in-cheek, sometimes not. And Tara had a, really enjoyed her. <laughs> um, and another... <laughs> Another lady came and talked to her and basically said what? You just say that. Go for it. Well, she, we all got along really well, but my friend Vicki took me aside and said, be careful of trying to emulate this. Her, her name was Deborah. Be careful of being too much like Deborah because um, basically she said she's really hard on her husband and it's not a... It's not a good look, you know, it's kind of what she said in that, um, it's, in, a, in her own words, she said, it's not cool to make fun of your husband. So even though it might be funny, and even though he's probably worthy of it, don't do it. So why didn't you take that advice? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I was making fun of her. And the gold star goes to Mark here, let's see. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> No. She just said that. <laughs> and like she said, we did get along really well, but it is a good example of that, that sometimes we in our innocence can be a deterrent or uh, a downfall or whatever, I can't think of words tonight, for others. And it's not just women in that sense. I think it can be anything for us as Christians. Maybe even what we watch on TV. If I hear a good, solid Christian person and they're watching this on TV and it's like, oh, well, they think it's okay to watch that. Well, I, I think it's probably all right if I watch that on TV. That what we do does affect others. It isn't just how women treat their husbands. That's the context here in Esther, but that context can be broadened out a great deal. If you see a Christian that goes out and is getting drunk and drinking and partying, but then they're talking about Jesus and whatnot, oh, that's so cool that they can go and witness while they're drinking. Uh, no, that's not cool. Okay, but that might give, it gives people that impression that, oh, this is okay. This is what Christianity looks like. No, that, that's not what Christianity looks like. Verse 19, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Remember Matthew 22, that parable of the wedding banquet? Go to the street corners and invite anybody, everybody, Someone who's going to be better than she. Well, Second Chronicles 30 verse 1 says, uh, I'll give you a little background here. What's going to happen is there's a similar thing that's going to happen in the days of Hezekiah that we see happening here, where they sent out a letter to celebrate the seven-day festival. Um, it says, Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh which is interesting because Ephraim becomes known as Gentiles. So it's like going out to everybody, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover, which is a seven-day feast to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. At the king's command, couriers went throughout 
Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your parents and your fellow Israelites who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their ancestors, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Don't be stiff-necked as your ancestors were. Submit to the Lord. Come to his sanctuary. God's calling? Come. Submit. Which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your fellow Israelites and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed him or them. So almost a parallel type thing going on in Israel. Come to Jerusalem for the seven-day festival. If you don't come, you're in trouble. And yet there are those that ridicule it. They ridicule the call. Kind of the same type of thing as the Matthew 22 parable of the wedding banquet. Just some interesting parallels there. It's a spiritual truth that I'm saying is being reoccurring here in Scripture. Then it goes on in 2 Chronicles 30. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered following the word of the Lord. So while some ridiculed, some accepted the call. They followed the word of the Lord. And that's kind of what we're going to see here in Esther. Verse 20. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Mamukin proposed. So when Vashti's removed, it's going to send a message. It's going to encourage others to be good spouses. Likewise, when we see church discipline practiced well, it encourages us to be good, uh, you know, a good bride, a good church. Because it induces fear. And that fear is what has been removed from Christianity today. The, the fear of the Lord, that he's now just our buddy, not the omnipotent, omniscient, sovereign creator you know, that we have a right to talk back to. That fear is good. We've talked about that before. Here's some power of the fear of God. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the Levitical priests, to the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years in the year of canceling debts, during the festival of tabernacles, which again is very significant. If you remember tabernacles, that's when... You're supposed to be reading the law. At that time it goes out. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before them in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and children, and foreigners residing in your towns, so that they can listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and follow carefully all the words of this law. So the power of the fear of God is to obey the word of God. It instills a good fear in us. I wanted my children to have a healthy fear of me because it kept them safe. Proverbs 16.6, we're just about done here. In mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity, and by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. It's a good, good word there. Acts 10.34, Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Proverbs 14.27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So we should fear our king and husband, Yeshua. 
there's no wonder to me why the devil has tried to strip Christianity of the fear of God and to make him just our buddy because it keeps us from obeying him. It makes us comfortable in our sins. Esther 1.22 says, He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household, using his native tongue. So the letters go out to literally the world of that day. Um, our letters from God, the Bible, ultimately has been sent to the four corners of the earth as well. It's been translated into almost every language on earth. And what does it do? It instructs men to be the head of their house. It instructs men to lead their families in the word of God. And if you don't, you're the one that's held accountable. Remember Adam and Eve. Adam didn't lead... Uh, well, bottom line is this. When we see... In the New Testament, Timothy tells us Adam was not deceived. It was Eve that was deceived. But then it also tells us in the New Testament that by sin, death came into the world through Adam. Adam is blamed for it. Why? Because he had the headship. He had the responsibility. And so, he gets the blame. And let me tell you, men of your homes, if you're not leading Bible studies or training and, and praying and, and leading your home, you will take the blame for or take responsibility for the consequences of those actions. That it's an important role. Women, you need to be respecting and submitting and whatever, but men, you better be leading properly, loving properly. Those... It goes both ways. There, this isn't a one-way street. We need each other. So, um, Last one, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. You know, when we read this here in Esther... There is a tendency for us to think, that's kind of like male chauvinistic there, isn't it? Proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. I mean, where does, where does this guy get off? Well, that's exactly what the king tells us to do as well. And so, keep that in mind too. But anyway, so what we've seen here tonight is that there are a lot of parallels going on here. Um, and it only gets better from here. In this first chapter, you see the king has thrown a banquet. The rebellious church refuses to come, so they are going to be cast out. An invitation is going to the highways now to invite others in, those who will submit, those who will fear, those who will love, those who will give up everything. And they are the ones that will be rewarded, ultimately. Now, as we go through this, you're going to see it's a parable. Parallels aren't going to have exact, you know, in every way. But you'll be surprised at some of the things. It's like, I don't see how that fits. And you're going to go, oh, yes, it does fit. So, anyway.